are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Rose Gladney, Professor Emerita of American Studies at the University of Alabama. She has published extensively on the life and work of Lillian Smith, including How Am I to Be Heard, Letters of Lillian Smith, and A Lillian Smith Reader, which she co-edited with Lisa Hodgins. She has also provided introductions to One Hour and Killers of the Dream. She has interviewed throughout her life acquaintances and relatives of Lillian Smith from Paula Snelling, Esther Smith, Frank Smith, Annie Laurie Peeler, and Nancy Smith-Victor. She has also conducted numerous interviews with former campers at Laurel Falls Camp, over 50 by her estimation. Today, we're going to talk to Rose about her work and Smith's continued influence. Thank you for joining me today, Rose. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) I'm glad to have you. You've been very instrumental in keeping Smith's voice and work alive. You know, how did you learn about Smith? And you started early, really, from what I remember. And what drove you to research her and to share her life and work with others? I first heard about Lillian Smith when I was in graduate school at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. I went there in 1970, in the fall of 1970. I was... uh, working on a doctorate in American studies. And it was about the same time that women's studies was being beginning to be introduced in, at um, the university and around the country. I was not, I hadn't gone there particularly looking for women's studies. I had gone there because I wanted to really find out, my question was, why does racism exist? Why do we still have all these problems with racial segregation? I thought the civil rights movement had had solved those problems in getting the laws changed and the schools were supposed to be desegregated and all those things, but in fact, um, they weren't. And in fact, the building of you know, what we call segregation academies had already started in my family in North Louisiana had been part of that. Mm -hmm. But I had been teaching in Memphis, Tennessee, a 10th grade English in a high school that was supposed to be the model school for uh, for the city. New, um, the city population was about 50-50, black and white. That was what the student body was supposed to be. But when I got there, um, it was the second year that it was open. In 1968, uh, it had already become 97% black. And I was teaching five classes of 10th grade English and got involved in what was an ongoing part of the civil rights movement because this may be too much of a sideline, tell me if it is. But that's when I was teaching as I said, five classes of 10th grade English. And I, in those five classes, I probably had maybe five white students altogether. I felt like I needed to know a lot more in order to teach my students. And I, that's when I began 
to be interested in trying to read African-American literature, bring it into the class and uh, get students to write about their experiences. And I remember we were reading the play that's um, really about Emmett Till. And I had asked, my, this is, you know, 68, 69. Are you talking about James Baldwin's um, Loser Mr. Charlie? Yes, I think so. Anyway, I, I asked my students to go home and ask their, talk to their family, you know, about what they knew about Emmett Till. And they came back and said, my parents, you know, they don't want to talk about it. They said, don't ask, you know, don't, don't say anything about that. And that was, when you think about that, how many years that had happened, that was a good, you know, between the. About 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in, somewhere in there. Now that was part of what I was dealing with, but also in the, at that time, I happened to go to a, American Federation of Teachers meeting. I didn't know anything at all about AFT, um, had never thought about unions, but I had taught one year and I had the opportunity to go to a, a course in the summer at um, what was then Memphis State, University of Memphis now, is the class was called Teachers for Teachers of English of Culturally Deprived Children. And the principal at Northside High School where I was teaching thought that I probably would benefit from taking the course. So he recommended that I go. It was a six weeks class. And that was a major, major influence for me because there I met some of the best teachers of English in, I would say in the Memphis city schools and they were black teachers and they taught in the historically Blacks high schools. And there also, I met a, a, a woman who was, had come to take that class, who was originally from Alabama and living then in New Mexico. And anyway, she was, I, I got to know those teachers. And after I had finished that class, I had some good ideas about things to do with my students. And I came back and was looking forward to making some changes. And my my class, and we had the first faculty meeting. And I sat down by a couple of teachers who were, who became my good friends, the, t- the two black teachers there, two of the black teachers in this, in the high school. And they were talking about um, something, getting a thing in the mail about the American Federation of Teachers meeting. Well, I didn't know anything about that, but I had learned just enough Uh, in one year's teaching to be frustrated with some of the things that the school was expecting us to do. And they, and they're really minor things when you talk, when you think about it, but they were seemed to me to take away time from what was really important in terms of teaching and focusing on bookkeeping or something. But at any rate, I had never heard about that before, but I went home and the thing was that, AFT was going to be organizing in Memphis. And you see Memphis at that time, although the schools were officially desegregated, of course they were resegregating. And also 
the school board had only one black member. I went home and I found that same invitation in my mailbox and I decided I would go to the meeting. And at the meeting, there were some of those teachers that I had met that summer. And so I felt, you know, quite enjoyed seeing them again. And I listened to what the AFT people said and what they thought needed to be done in the schools and changes as they decided to organize uh, the man who was leading the meeting said, now we can't just have black leadership. We've got to have white leadership too. And of course, I was about the only white person there at that point. So I was asked if I would be co-chair. And so I said, sure, I would. And that was my second year teaching there, the beginning of it. And I I went home and the next morning I got a phone call and this person said they were calling from one of the radio stations in Memphis and they wanted to, they understood that I was co-chair of this AFT organizing committee meeting. And I thought since I had talked with some friends of mine later that evening before, after I had gone to that meeting, I thought it was one of, those friends who was a teacher at the college at Rhodes, what is now Rhodes College. And I said, I called him by name. I said, oh, you know, you're, you're kidding me. And uh, I just, you know, was laughing about it. And it turned out, no, it wasn't kidding. It really was the radio station. <laughs> and so <laughs> they said, no, you know, this is really so-and-so. They wanted to know what I thought well. I just, the only thing I knew to say was what I had heard at that meeting, that what we were about. And so I just told them that's what we were about. And when I got to school that morning, 30 minutes later or so, uh, the principal wanted to see me in the office. And that was the beginning of my, I guess, um, politicization and and ultimately more active involvement in Memphis in the civil rights movement because I was connected with more uh, of the black leadership education wise. You've heard the name Jim Lawson. Mm-hmm. Jim Lawson was the minister at Centenary Methodist Church in Memphis. And the organist there was a friend of mine from college days. And I had I was an English major, but I sang in the in the uh, college chorus, and I took um, I took voice lessons. Also, when I had come back to start teaching, I reconnected with my voice teacher, and also with my friend who was the organist at Centenary Methodist. And I was as as I became more involved with what was going on in the whole of the city and especially around the civil civil rights and protesting um, what was happening in the schools and and the fact that there was no, there was not enough representation on the school board. All of those things kind of came together. So I was, so I got to know Jim Lawson because I went and sang in the choir at Centenary Methodist because I knew the organist and all those kinds of things were just part of what was 
what happened to me in 60, the fall of 69, spring of 70. Well, ultimately there was a boycott, a school boycott protesting and students from Northside High School participated in that. And I went, I went to, to the march. I remember going to some of the marches. But what significantly happened was that uh, Deborah Cleves, who was a senior and honor student at Northside, uh, was among the students who was arrested for protesting outside the school. Um, I didn't, I didn't uh, boycott the school, you know, I was still teaching, but I encouraged my students to write what they wanted, what they thought and what they felt about things. But Deborah Cleves' brother was a student of mine. So I knew who she was. And she was um, an outstanding student, honor student. Her mother was, you know, supporting the family, working as a, I think probably as an, an aide or something like that in the hospital. But I know that Deborah was arrested. And so my friends, my two friends, Bernice was one of them. And, um, and she called me. Uh, after Deborah was arrested and told me that they wouldn't, uh, when she was in the, I guess, juvenile detention and they wouldn't let her mother come to see her. So Bernice took me down and she knew what she was doing. She said, if, if you go in there, you can, they'll let you see her. So I did, I went in and told her that I was, her te that I was a teacher at Northside and I wanted to speak to Deborah. And because, of, because I was white, they let me in. And I knew at that moment, you know what, I mean, that's, that's my searing moment of what white privilege means. Because I got to go in and see Deborah and talk with her. And when I came back out, we called a lawyer who was, he couldn't take it because he was already working for the, you know, being the lawyer for the adults in the civil rights movement there at the time. But he recommended a man named Ron Barad, who was teaching constitutional law at, at Memphis State Law School. Then I said it was turned out to be a baptism by fire for Ron and for me, because when I ultimately I questioned the fact Deborah was expelled. And I questioned that. And when I questioned that, and we sued to get her back into school, I testified in court on her behalf. And the day after that happened, I was informed, that although she and the other students were in, Memphis, that in other Memphis schools too, that were reinstated. Uh, see, I did that because Deborah, I knew, I knew who she was. I knew she was a good student. I knew, and her mother was thinking that the only thing she could do was to send her away um, to Detroit or someplace else to her father and uh, to get her out of town. And she wouldn't have graduated, you know, and it wouldn't have all those things. So that's why we, we ultimately sued to have her reinstated. And after she, you... She and after you testified, you were let go? 
Yeah, no, after I was testified, the day after I, in court, uh, I won't go into that too much. But anyway, the next day when I came back, I was called into the office and the evaluation ultimately was that I would not be rehired. Yeah. So at the end of that term. So then, you know, there was a meeting of the school board. This pretty much took up the spring of 1970. And ultimately, um, there was a meeting at the school board that where I went and, and um, I was, I didn't realize this at the time, but when I got out, I learned that students from the college, from Rhodes College, had organized and were protesting outside the school board meeting while I was, the hearing was being held inside. And then after the hearing was over and we went, I went into, you know, to the meeting, there were all these people there who were standing up in the open public meeting um, to have me reinstated. Well, I was reinstated, but I was informed that I would be moved from Northside High School to Manassas, which was the oldest black high school in Memphis. Um, and the principal there, thinking was the principal there, who was kind of of the old school authoritative principals, would see to it that I didn't do anything rash. But I had already, I had already made up my mind that I wasn't going to continue at the, in high school teaching, not so much because of that, but because of just, just, uh, I mean, many things about teaching in high school level, but I had already decided that I was going on to graduate school. And the question, that's when I went to, I had, uh, I got accepted at the University of New Mexico in American studies. And the reason I had applied for American studies was because I went, I went and talked to an English professor at the Rhodes College. And he said, and I said, I wanted to go and do the doctoral program and I wanted to work in black literature. And he said, well, there is no such thing as black literature. It's all protest literature. That's just protest literature. That's not real literature. But if that's what you want to do, I think you should look into American studies programs. That's a, that's an interesting thing. I mean, that's the Black Power movement at that time too. Yes. Um, but what there's a lot of things here that that we need to unpack, and we just don't have the time because you were right. Because you were talking about, I want to get to you going to New Mexico, but you were talking about going to New Mexico in the Women's Studies Department. This is this is an important period, of course, because '68 in April is when King is assassinated in Memphis, when he is yes. there for the Poor People's Campaign. There and I have a whole story about that too. But go ahead. All right, and and even even one of Lillian's nieces, Sue Ellen, was there. Um, was Anna Laurie still there in Memphis at the time? I know they didn't know each other, but Anna Laurie, her sister, may have still been there at that time too. So this 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 huge confluence and a few things, like I said, the women's studies. I think, studies I think that Anna Laurie may have. She may still be in Memphis, but here's the big thing to remember in terms of putting her history. Do you remember when um, Head Start was begun? I don't. I have that. I did a, I did a uh, 
when I talked with John Templeton, he told me all of this. And John Templeton was very close with, with Lillian's sister, Anna Laurie. Yes. Yes. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. And, and that Petey, as he called her, right. Petey, when she retired from teaching and she was hot, she was hired or whatever to, to go to DC and work to establish, to create Head Start and then to get it started, you know, see how it was implemented. So it's, it's, um, that's a, that's just saying that that's why I'm saying, I don't know if, I don't know. Yeah. If, if she was still in Memphis at that time, I know that John Templeton's brother was in the administration at Rhodes College. Okay. Lloyd, Lloyd Templeton, uh, and was a good, I knew him very well. And uh, I didn't know anything about, you know, Lincoln Smith or any of the rest of it. Right. But and that's I, what's, that's what's really amazing to me is all, all of these connections and what you're highlighting there, of course, is that Lillian was not the only one in her family who was doing things that were changing the world, basically. Um, right. you, know, you mentioned yeah. Petey. We could talk yeah. about Esther. We can talk about Frank. We can talk about everybody else, too. But it's 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 not just her. It's this family connection and Paula. It really is. And yes. the, the things, like, like I said, the things that stuck out to me, too, is you're talking about this moment, this important moment. And I'm thinking about this important moment in your life and what and what you are doing in Memphis. And like I said, King being assassinated in 68. Women's studies and black studies department starting. The first black studies department was 68 at San Francisco State. And then mm -hmm. that's when that's when those started coming in. Right. The focus right. on, on African-American literature, um, Latinx literature, LGBTQ rights, civil rights. All these types of things are happening at this time. And education is a part of this. I think, too, you're talking about wanting to learn more Black literature, African-American literature to teach your students and to teach yourself. Right. And this is this is the same time period when the National Council of Teachers of English, the big English teachers body right. for, for K through university, comes out with their statement, students write to their own language. They yes. talk about dialects. They talk about there's no edited American English. There's it's all kind of to maintain hierarchies. And some of the other things they mentioned too are that you yeah. need to have multicultural literature in your classroom for your students and for yourself. And see and, that one class in Memphis State, I remember teachers talking about having some sense of what the lang what what you might call black English was, you know, what you the, the way your students were speaking. Yeah. And 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 other things. And and I and I think just knowing well, I know that knowing those the black teachers that I met during that time was a big connection with me for what, you know, adding to what I wanted to learn about and what I want and what I wanted to teach and what I wanted to. And then asking my students to write yeah, from their own poems, their own whatevers, you which, know, which I think is a huge takeaway, not just from the NCTE statement. I'm, I'm teaching it this semester again, but. Their, their focus, and remember this is 72, 74, focus on, on deep meaning, not surface structure, basically. So those surface things, we can, we, can, we can do whatever with, right? I mean, we can fix them if we need to be edited American English, do whatever. 
but that deep yeah. meaning is the key. And as you're talking, there, there are multiple things that stick out to me as you're talking. That question you began with, wanting to know why does racism exist? Why do we have these problems? You were asking yourself. And I go back to, I was rereading Martin Luther King's A Testament of Hope the other day. And it was published posthumously in 69. But he says this, many whites hasten to congratulate themselves on what little progress we, we blacks have made. I'm sure that most whites felt with the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, all race problems were automatically solved because most white people are so far removed from the life of the average black person. There has been little to challenge this assumption, yet blacks continue to live with racism every day. And it reminds me of the discussions after Obama's elected president that were colorblind and post-racial and all this stuff too. It's repeating. And then the other thing that, that sticks out to me too is, is your discussion of education. And Lil, Frank, Esther, Petey, the, all those siblings and Paula saw the importance of education. And I was reading something about the 1947, 1946 Georgia elections where a couple of authors went and interviewed people around the state and they interviewed Lillian and Frank. And Lil and Frank were talking about what's the most important thing in government. And Lil said this, I'd put education at the top of the list. And by that, I mean education without discrimination. And then Frank followed it up and he said, it's a fact we have to accept the government cannot be far ahead of the culture. What we really need is a revolution in our educational process. People must be brought to understand from the ground up what democracy and self-government require of the individual. And education is a key and important. And, and you talk about that when you're talking about your experiences in Memphis. And the other connection, too, that we have to bring up, you and I, different generations, but we're from the same place in North Louisiana. You and That's I right. probably had similar educational experiences um, in certain ways. You and I never learned about the racial violence probably that occurred in North Louisiana. I know that I did or in Louisiana in general. You and I never encountered African-American or black literature when we were growing up in the educational system, probably. And that's right. I knew only I had only one poem. Langston uh, Hughes, probably. Um, or Dunbar. At this moment, I mean, I, I used to know it. But, um, okay. You know, it's God's, it's not God's trombones, but it's, Oh, James Weldon Johnson. Yes, James Weldon Johnson. And th this, this is this is what's so key to me. I didn't hear about Lil until almost after I was finishing graduate school. You didn't hear about her until you got to graduate school, right? Right. Um, I didn't hear and about the massacres that occurred along that Interstate 20 corridor, specifically, as you know, the the Bozier massacre in 1868, where over. I've seen different numbers. I think 160 black men, women, and children were murdered as an act of voter suppression in Bozier. And Bozier is my home parish where I'm from. And thinking about Lil, thinking about yourself, and we still haven't even gotten to your introduction a little bit, but thinking about those things, why is it important that we teach others, specifically children, in our educational systems about individuals such as Lil and events like the Bozier massacre? And the reason I ask that is this, we've had these pushes even still now um, for this accurate portrayal of history. There's a, there's a new house bill in Arkansas that's, that's arguing that there should be an accurate patriotic view of history. 
that we can't teach the 1619 project because that's inaccurate. So why are these things important? What would it have done for you to, to have known Lil's work before you went to graduate school or while you were growing up in Louisiana? What would that have done to you? You know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it would have done to me. And part of it is it, it when when I did read it for the first time, it was like, this is, I mean, what I said to my roommate, my apartment mate, I said, this woman is writing my life. Yeah. And, and that's the, it's hard for me to imagine if I had read it, even in high school, yeah. what, what that would have done, except that I know it would have been really, really important. And I'll, and I'll say this because I, I was already, I mean, in, in high school, 15, 16, I was beginning to question some things, you know, yeah. um, that that was a time when this big anti-communist crusade mm-hmm. and Louisiana law said that you had to be had six weeks of communism <laughs> to, to read, to, to be taught in order to graduate so that you would know what it was. And so one of my, you know, one of my teachers taught it for six weeks. And I remember reading uh, the communist manifesto and there were some things in it. And I thought, this doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> and then I remember reading, you know, of course, at the same time, very much involved in, in church youth things yeah. and, and reading about the, the disciples having everything in common. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And, and I went to my preacher and I said, that sounds like communism. And, and so that's, you know, that's just, uh, I was, I was really, uh, I was concerned. I was concerned also about learning that people thought that if you didn't, you know, that you couldn't have any other, anything but Christianity being the only, yeah, the only answer. But because it was so important. And also when I went to a, a church group, meeting that was outside Louisiana that was up in North Carolina where uh, it was uh, around missionaries. I was very much interested in being a missionary. There were a few black students there, Presbyterians in in that summer thing. And uh, I was standing in line for a meal or whatever. And the black students said, do you believe, do you believe in integration or school, you know, integration. And I didn't know what to say. Because I thought if I say yes, I'll be saying I'm in communism. And if I say no, I will offend her. And so I said, I don't know, which was true, you know. But that was a real that was a real dilemma. Those I mean those kinds of things, what it when I when you asked me what it would have meant to me. Oh, I'm, I'm hoping I could have read it, but I know it, I know it would have changed me because if it changed me when I was 26 or seven, you know, to read it, 
It reminds me too of um, her discussion. Oh, what's the name of it? Um, Growing into freedom. I think that's that's the piece where she's talking about, and I forget her name. Is it, is it Julie or, or June? Is it Julia, the, the girl who came to live with them? Oh, name. Um, I always forget that. But, but, but the girl came to live with her who the white townswomen said she's white. So they brought her to, and she was living with the black family. So they yes, took yeah. her from the black family and had her uh, live with the Smiths yeah. for three weeks. And then they're like, no, no, she's black. And then sent her away. Yeah. And then Lil's asking her mother, why did she have to go away and questioning her? And right. there's a moment in there where she says, I questioned her and I knew, I just didn't have the words to put in. I just didn't have the words to say what I really wanted to say. I didn't have the words to express right. what I knew was wrong. Right. And I'm wondering if that's the same case for, for, for people like you and me, that we knew these things, we saw these things, but we didn't, we didn't have the words to express them. We didn't. And then That's Will right. brings that in and others too. But And she brings it in so well because she's talking, you know, when she talks to the campers, right. because she understands that what she, what they're talking about is in conflict and that she's trying to bring it about and having them talk about things so that they come, so that they really think, think about it. And even even then, you know, Camper says, yeah. "Why do you teach us these things when you know we can't do it?" Right. I mean, and, the, and that's the situations the, they go back to. It recognizes the intensity of it, and how deep it is, how deep, and how long it is a part of, how deeply rooted it is in our culture, and at the same time, how there's a way that we can think about it. And deal with it. Right. How deep there's a way that we can that we can we can create a different way of relating, and we can find the words, and we can find a way to relate to each other that isn't governed by these very destructive, you know, laws and ways of being. And you point out how deeply rooted it is. I mean, you, you know that the other day somebody shared with us a passage and was asking where it was from. And it's actually from, from Lil's introduction, the 1961 introduction to killers of the dream. And the passage reads like this. This is quote, it is the apathy of white Southerners that disturbs me. And may I add this apathy, this apathy is North and West of our region too. Something I always try and point out to my students. I teach predominantly Southern students is that this is not a Southern issue. It's a, national and I would say global issue on various levels. Um, But she continues, there are so many people who are determined not to do wrong, but equally determined not to do right. Thus, they walk straight into nothingness. Are we the nation that first embarked on the high adventure of making a world fit for human beings to live in, about to destroy ourselves because we have killed our dream? Can we live with the dead dream inside us? How many dead dreams will it take to destroy us all? And that's a powerful passage. And then you wrote back in that email thread, this, this is what you replied with. You said, once again, I think Lil knew herself better than I've ever realized. She knew her worth. She knew she was exploring and writing about something bigger than ourselves, but also urgently important, not only to Southern white girls, but to all earthlings. And my question is, 
why is Lil's work not just pertinent to our current moment here in the United States and even her moment, but as you put it, all earthlings. And we have to remember too, that she said she wanted her place to be on Screamer Mountain, but she wanted her spirit to embody the world basically. Yeah, she, she says, I want my feet, my feet to stay yeah. on home ground, my mind to cover the whole world. Right. And, and the way you said it, I'm sure she would agree too, that it is um, why that is so important today. And I mean, if, if ever, <laughs> if ever we could, we need it, we, we are, uh, it seems to me, because of all the kinds of things that have broken down barriers and Lee and Smith talks about all the ways, you know, that, that we have, that we see globally now. And, and at one point says, you know, can, are we, can we go to the moon and the stars and, and not take care of what we need to on earth or we have to do, you know, those kinds of things. It's the same similar kind of idea, yeah. but it's that, so much requires that we that we see it globally because we we are so even more we are so more connected even than what she saw happening through television you know the fact that tv cameras covered the riots and the march on the pettus bridge and all those things and it it brought people to you know, from all over, right. into the civil rights protest, and and working to change those laws. That there's just no escaping it. There's also the oh, I, I I'm not answering your question well because I I keep thinking of all the connections in her family, you know that she had that she that she had an older sister who married a man who and they went to China. Yeah. To work with the YMCA, and so their children grew up in China. There's, there's so many, there's so many connections that, and that that that, that literally then Lil's going there herself. You know that was such an, a major thing that happened to her because she was exposed to different ideas. Yeah, the, the, there's, there's two things. There's two things that really stick out to me that. I kind of want to say with this because the more the more I read her, the more I see her. We have these labels. I, she's more than a Southern writer. She's a writer born in the South and writing about the South, but she is much more than that. She's a global writer. And I think about her travels to India. I was just rereading her some of her Chicago Defender columns that you and Lisa, you know, edited and put in the in the Lillian Smith Reader. And yes. the first one y'all have there, October 30th, 1948, really stands out to me. There's, there's two things I want to read, one from this and one from the journey. But she says, when I have become too weighed down with the world's misery, I go to the kitchen and cook. I whip up a cake or make a chicken pilau. I can't pronounce that. I apologize. A wonderful new version of this. And this is what I have underlined. Was served me in a Muslim home when I was in India last year or curry shrimp or make an old fashioned vegetable soup with plenty of okra in it. And she talks about, you know, just, just cooking and then cleaning and things like that and the importance yes. of it. But what sticks out to me is she throws that in was served me in a Muslim home when I was in India last year. And she doesn't talk about Islam. She doesn't talk about Judaism really, or, or the religions, 
But that's a really telling thing that she throws in there. And then in all of the columns, I think the majority of the columns that y'all have republished here, she moves from region to region and country to country. Yes. She has one where she's talking about raising children. And then she mentions a woman um, from the Gold Coast of Africa. I think that she met in England, right? And right. she, th- she right. talks about here in the South. She talks about Germany. She talks about that. It's all encompassing. And then I always think too, my favorite passage, probably one of my favorite passages ever written is from the journey. And it's that opening prologue. And I, I love it for so many reasons, but there is no going alone on a journey, whether one explores strange lands or main street or one's own backyard, always invisible traveling companions are close by. The giants and pygmies of memory, of belief, pulling you this way and that, not letting you see the world life-size, but insisting that you measure it by their own height and weight, telling you to look this way and not that way, basically. And what strikes me with that, with that opening, what I think is so powerful, is that she says, no matter if one explores strange lands or main street, she traveled, yes, but you don't have to travel to let your mind be open to exploring the world. And she, she points out, too, that you have to be open to do it, even if you do travel, which is what this gets to me. But the last thing that gets to me with this, too, is you talk about the deep roots and those giants and pygmies are belief are those deep roots that pull her this way and that. And it, it's just such a profound and beautiful passage that she encompasses not just this ground here in Georgia, in the South, but she encompasses the entirety of the globe. Yes. And that thought, all earthlings. That is why <laughs> you asked me why I thought that. And, and that is why the journey is, I have to say, the journey is still my favorite. I keep coming back to it. I, I keep wishing that it were in print and that it were looked at again, because it seems to me everyone who does know Lillian Smith and reads the journey comes back to it and back to it. And that it, that it's written out of a time in her life where she felt intensely her imminent death and what that meant that she was working through things that were so very much important to her, not so much in terms of what she thought might be a a bestseller, but what she, what she needed to write. And of course, I think she did that with every book. I think she wrote what she needed, you know, what she needed to, to write. And what's so amazing is she, she writes that and she's dealing with her own mortality. Exactly. She, lives for, she lives for 12 more years. She travels to India. She goes to Washington. She's not on the front lines of the civil rights movement. She, she's very much involved. She does all these things within that time because that was published in 54. Right. I remember who says it in the um, documentary. You may have said it in Hal Jacobs documentary. She made the most of what she had of the time she had. Yes. Yeah, she did. And I think I think that's a good way to end it, that we need to make the most of the time we have to create that better future that we strive to create in the world for all of us. And I think it is, she points, I think she let reminds us of the resources that we have. Yes. That we can, that we can do it. You know, when she looked back and said, you're going to think of, of the 19... 19- 50s as a time of wholeness. Yeah. Uh, when the walls came down, 
you know, how many people were thinking that when McCarthy and all the rest of it and the civil rights was beginning and she's going to, and she sees it ultimately as, you know, creating the, creating the new possibilities. And children and children are at the forefront of it. Yes. Oh, thank you for spending time with us. It was an excellent conversation. It's my pleasure. Unfortunately, it's never ending, or maybe fortunately. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think somebody posted, somebody was teaching, I'm going to end with this, somebody was teaching Lillian Smith to a a group of um, adult adult learners at at a college class, and she basically posted online and said, I, I hope and pray for a day when we don't, when Lillian Smith doesn't have so much importance in that regard. Some of the issues that we're dealing with. Not that we don't read her, but that the importance of her words still resonating, you know, aren't here. Well, if we keep growing, there'll probably always be something to reconnect with. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.